Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this episode, Father covers paragraphs 1601 to 1666, What is Matrimony? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! So we begin, first of all, the Catechism says, with marriage in God's plan. So what these paragraphs, 1602 through 1620, are going to do is they're going to explain to us the institution of the sacrament of marriage. So we're reminded, again, every sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. The institution of every sacrament entails preparation in the Old Testament. The the work of instituting the sacrament by Christ, often referencing passages from the Gospels, and then how the sacrament is present in the life of the church, especially seen in Acts of the Apostles, and in the Pauline letters and other letters. So in this section we begin, just as we have with the other sacraments, looking at marriage before Christ or how it was prefigured um, in the Old Testament. Now the interesting thing about marriage, about the sacrament of matrimony, is that of course we know or that it existed before the Incarnation, the event of the Incarnation. And so the Catechism, in, in explaining the, the preparation for this, distinguishes the preparation for the sacrament of matrimony, for the prefigurement of it, into two ways, two times. The first is how marriage was built, planned, and foreseen and designed by God before the fall, and then what happens to marriage after the fall, especially seen through the lens of the Old Testament. So we begin, first of all, with 1602. Scripture speaks throughout of marriage and its mystery its institution, and the meaning God has given it, its origin and its end, its various realizations through the history of salvation. Marriage and its mystery were reminded that every sacrament, outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace, we said that there is the in, the, in, in explaining sacraments at the beginning, really, of this series, we talked about how the seven sacraments consist of two things. The sacramentum, really the outward sign, and the mysterium, the mystery, which includes the grace of the sacraments, but also how it makes present the mysteries, the events of Christ's life, how it makes present Christ. So the Catechism is telling us that 
throughout Scripture, there's a reference to marriage and then to the mystery that it points to. And we're going to find out later in this section what is precisely the mystery that matrimony is pointing to as a sacrament. 1603, which is a very long paragraph, essentially describes the natural understanding of marriage. So if you recall even farther long ago, at the very beginning of the catechism, we talked about man's search for God. God responds, he reaches out, he reveals himself, and then man responds in faith. We know that there is um, built into this world, there is a natural knowledge of God, an ability to know God, that built into human nature is God's plan for what it means to be human. And so, before the Catechism even references Scripture, it talks about how matrimony can be known from a a natural point of view. That it is seen in every culture and every age. That God is the author of marriage. We hear the Catechism say, the vocation of marriage is written in the very nature of man and woman as they came from the hand of the Creator. There is something about being a man and something about being a woman. These distinct qualities, these distinct shares in the one human nature that point to what marriage is and all about. But the catechism goes on and there's an interesting, important line. Marriage is not a purely human institution. Despite the many variations it may have undergone through the centuries in different cultures, social structures, and spiritual attitudes, these differences should not cause us to forget its common and permanent characteristics. Although the dignity of this institution is not transparent everywhere with the same clarity, Some sense of the greatness of the matrimonial union exists in all cultures. So the catechism is, is balancing this. It is a natural institution, matrimony is. It's built into what it means to be male, what it means to be female. It's a natural institution... And, in, and it also is a human institution because we've seen how matrimony has evolved through the history of the human race and through different cultures. The Catechism acknowledges this. It acknowledges, we might say, the, the claims of the world that marriage is a human institution. The Catechism says... That yes, we have seen how marriage has changed, has been redefined throughout different cultures and in different ages and in different religions. 
But these differences, the Catechism reminds us, should not lead us to forget who the author of marriage is and and what are the common basic characteristics of marriage. What are the essential characteristics of marriage? And even, even though we have seen the institution of marriage redefined through the ages and through different cultures, there is still a recognition of its importance. There's still a recognition of its importance in every culture. And perhaps the attempt to redefine it, to restructure it, um, is in itself a testimony to how important marriage is. 1603, we acknowledge that marriage is a natural institution, a human institution, but we also have to acknowledge that it is also of divine origin. 1604, God who created man out of love also calls him to love, the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being. Since God created the human person, man and woman, their mutual love becomes an image of the absolute and unfailing love with which God loves man. In that first paragraph, 1603, natural and human institution, we recognize that. The importance of it seems to point to a deeper reality, and that is that God the creator of the human person who created us to love is the author of marriage. Is the author of marriage. And ultimately, we're even getting this taste, this uh, a glimpse of the plan of marriage, of the mystery of marriage. That it reveals the unfailing love which God, with which God loves man. That's beginning to point to the interior mystery of marriage. Holy Scripture, this is paragraph 1605, Holy Scripture affirms that man and woman were created for one another, to be a helpmate, to complete each other. Flesh of his flesh equals one body, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. This is the plan of God from the beginning for marriage. That they reveal that marriage is a sign which reveals God's infinite love for the human person, and that man and woman be united. Man and woman be united. Now this plan gets hijacked, we might say. It gets um, distorted. And that's with, of course, the fall of the human race. So this section of the Catechism really points back to that section that talked about the human person, the fall, and creation. So we, gotta, we have to get those paragraphs 
those sections of the catechism down first. They're the foundation to help us then to understand matrimony or to read those with those. So then the catechism switches marriage under the regime of sin. The union, their union, the union of man and woman, has always been threatened by discord, a spirit of domination, infidelity, jealousy, and conflicts that can escalate into hatred and separation. So we talk about from the fall there are all these relationships that are broken. God's relationship with man. Man's relationship with creation. Man's internal relationship within himself. The balance, the interplay of his reason, his passions, and his will. And then also there is a break in the relationship amongst humans. And most especially in the discord, the lack of harmony between man and woman. And so this can be seen. It's a mark, really, of the fall. It's a proof of the fall of the tensions between man and woman. This disorder can manifest itself more or less acutely and can be more or less overcome according to the circumstances of cultures, errors, and individuals. But it does seem to have a universal character. So men and women aren't always in conflict. There is harmony in marriage, even in secular marriages and, or um, in natural marriages or in non-sacramental marriages. There's still harmony. However, I don't think it's possible for any of us to say that um, there is no disharmony between male and female. This is an obvious, and it seems to have, as the Catechism says, a universal character. The Catechism proceeds, According to faith, the disorder we notice so painfully does not stem from the nature of man and woman, nor from the nature of their relations, but from sin. So the problem is not with what it means to be male. The problem is not with what it means to be female. The problem is not with the nature of their union together. The problem is with sin. Sin is the problem. We have, we have to really recognize that. That as much as we uphold human nature, and we need to uphold it, it is sin that is the problem. Sin is the problem. So it continues, this paragraph, 1603. Distorted by mutual recriminations, their mutual attraction, so the Creator's own gift changed into a relationship of domination and lust. So the good thing, the attraction that male has for female and female has for male, is corrupted by the fall, by sin, into lust, objectification, domination, or the beautiful vocation 
of man and woman to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the world, which is what God asks of them, which is the fruit of marriage, procreation, is burdened by a pain of childbirth and the toil of work. So, made for good, experience suffering. Why? Because of sin, because of the fall. 1608, nevertheless, the order of creation persists, though seriously disturbed. To heal the wounds of sin, man and woman need the help of the grace of God, and his infinite mercy never refuses them. So, this is the point. Marriage is necessary. It is part of human nature. Human nature still remains intact. The order of creation persists, though seriously disturbed. Men are still seeking the unity with woman. Woman is still seeking unity with man. But there is this discord. How is the discord resolved? It's not resolved by human effort. It's not resolved by redesigning the institution of marriage. It is resolved by God's grace, by God's grace, which he never refuses to give us. Then the catechism proceeds. So, before the fall, after the fall, next section, marriage under the pedagogy of law, under the pedagogy of the law. What does this mean? Well, this is really marriage from Moses to Christ. So, we have the story in Genesis of the fall, both what, the, what it was like before and what it was like after. That's the first kind of preparation for marriage, prefigurement for marriage. And then we have how Israel practiced it. A couple points. Um, After the fall, marriage helps to overcome self-absorption, egoism, the pursuit of one's own pleasure, and to open oneself to the other, to mutual aid and self-giving. Marriage, in that sense, is like a discipline that is placed upon man and woman to train them, to train them in virtue, to orient them to God. Just like the rest of the the Mosaic law, it is a burden which is imposed upon Israel to train them, to keep their eyes focused on the Lord. It does help to overcome self-absorption and egoism, the pursuit of one's own pleasure, and to open oneself up to another. Those are the lessons which marriage gives. However, however, because of the fall, Israel has, in a sense, a distorted view of marriage. It does, moral conscience, we're told, concerning the unity and indissolubility of marriage developed under the pedagogy of the law. 
both the unity and the indissolubility of marriage. So they don't have a clear understanding. They have this fallen understanding of marriage. But the Lord is gradually teaching them what his plan for marriage is. On the one hand, the law of Moses permits polygamy. So there is a problem with the unity. It's not there. The indissolubility, divorce, is permitted um, by Moses. Um, infidelity is permitted, concubine, con- concubines. However, the law in some ways is training them for the good because it protects the rights of wives. But we should see it as a pedagogical tool. The law is, is teaching them virtue and guiding them to understand the Lord's full meaning for marriage. But throughout the Old Testament, and we see this especially in the prophets, Hosea 1 through 3, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 2 through 3, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, etc., 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 We see that marriage is an image, an image, a sign, pointing to God's covenant with Israel, to God's covenant with Israel. Even in the Old Testament, we could say that matrimony has, marriage has a sacramental value. It points to a hidden mystery. Namely, God's love for Israel. Then in 1612, we have marriage as is revealed by Christ and as it is instituted by Christ as a sacrament. First of all, um, we are reminded that really marriage is spoken about throughout throughout, um, the New Testament. But that really... Um, the nuptial covenant, so God's love with Israel that marriage pointed to in the Old Testament, finds its fulfillment in the love of Christ for his church. So that's what the catechism begins with. Really, Christ coming in the flesh and all that he does especially the Paschal Mysteries, his death and resurrection, are the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was doing. That Christ is the bridegroom. And the people for whom he has died and risen from the dead, that people, that the church, that is his bride. So that's the hidden mystery. But then how, how does Christ institute the sacrament, or where does he institute it? Well, one important point is 1613 is the wedding feast of Cana. The second is in his clear teaching on marriage, or the, the catechism uses unequivocal. In his preaching, Jesus unequivocally 
taught the original meaning of the union of man and woman as the Creator willed it from the beginning. The matrimonial union of man and woman is indissoluble. God has, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So Matthew 19 is, is kind of the crucial passage in his teaching. The unequivocal, again, twice it uses this statement, or this word, the unequivocal insistence on the indissolubility of the marriage bond may have left some perplexed. However, it points to something. Yes, it may be difficult, the permanency, the indissolubility of marriage. It may be difficult. However, it points to the actual wedding feast where Jesus marries his bride, the cross. It points to the cross, which ultimately is a sign of promise. The cross is a sign of promise, the catechism tells us. That the couple, venturing into what seems to be impossible, what seems to be difficult, receive the grace to do it, to live it. This grace of Christian marriage is a fruit of Christ's cross, the source of all Christian life. And then in 1616, there is a reference to Paul and his teaching, especially in Ephesians chapter 5 on marriage. And then in 1617, um, were a very crucial paragraph worth reading. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church. Already in baptism, the entry into the people of God is a nuptial mystery. We are, in a sense, married, which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist. The wedding is our baptism. The, fe- the wedding feast is the Eucharist. Christian marriage, then, is an efficacious sign that points to the marriage between Christ and the church. Since it signifies and communicates grace, marriage between baptized persons is a true sacrament of the new covenant. And then, interesting, people might find this curious, but Immediately after this treatment, in 1618 through 1620, virginity is mentioned. Virginity for the kingdom. If we were reminded that Jesus taught clearly um, in paragraph 19, or in Matthew chapter 19, he, te- he teaches clearly about those who choose to be eunuchs, who choose to be celibate who choose to be virgins for the kingdom. For the kingdom. Christ has invited certain persons to follow him in this way of life. Virginity for the sake of the kingdom of heaven is an unfolding of baptismal grace, a powerful sign of the supremacy of the bond with Christ. It also recalls that marriage is a reality of this present age, which is passing away. Marriage is a sign, is a sacrament 
to a greater reality. It passes away. Jesus, of course, says this, that, you know, in heaven, people are not married and, you know, wedded and and whatnot. Um, It points to the reality. Marriage is a sign that points to our individual union with Christ. And esteem for virginity, the Catechism says, helps us to give a proper understanding of Christian marriage, and vice versa. Um, but the lesson, and I think the point is, is the Catechism is reminding us that the sacrament of marriage is wonderful, it is encouraged, but we have to remember it is a sacrament, which on the one hand gives it great dignity. It's the source of its dignity. But as a sacrament, it's pointing to a deeper reality, a deeper mystery, something which is hidden. And that is, it is pointing to our individual union to Jesus Christ. So a spouse should remind someone of their commitment to Christ, should point them to their union with Christ and not be an end in themselves. So when, um, when we elevate marriage, which we rightly should, the sacrament of marriage, we have to always remember that it has a sign value pointing to Christ. In the next sections, we hear about the celebration of marriage. 1621, it's right that, the, that uh, weddings should happen during a Mass because of the connection that all the sacraments have with the Paschal mystery of Christ, which is made present at the Holy Mass. 1622 reminds couples preparing for marriage that in order for them to receive the sacrament... Worthy and fruitfully, they need to go to the sacrament of confession. And then in 1623, it talks about um, um, a discrepancy, not necessarily a discrepancy, but two ways of seeing the sacrament. In the Latin church, it is the couple who who really confer the sacrament upon each other through their consent before the church. In the East, while a couple has to also give their consent to each other, they also have to receive the blessing from the bishop or a priest. Now, in the Latin church, the priest or the bishop, or in some cases the deacon, um, has to be the official witness of the giving of consent. So sometimes you'll hear this explained that it, in the Latin church, in the Western church, our understanding of marriage is that it is the couple who celebrates the sacrament of marriage. The priest, the deacon, the bishop, whoever is witnessing, witnessing the marriage, witnessing this mutual giving of consents. We're going to talk about this word consent. Um, it's in the next section of the catechism, this Um, right after this next paragraph. 
And then because every sacrament has to have an epiclesis, an invocation of the Holy Spirit, why is it that we keep mentioning the Holy Spirit? Well, one, he's the third person of the Trinity. He's pretty important. But also we're reminded that the sacraments are the ongoing work of Christ and the Holy Spirit's joint mission to bring the world back to the Father. And that after the ascension, that joint mission continues, but with the church partnering with the Holy Spirit or joining in this common mission together. And so, because the sacraments are the means by which Christ's mysteries, his work continues in the world, the Holy Spirit is, has to be a part of it. So every sacrament has an epiclesis, a calling down of the Holy Spirit, as does the sacrament of marriage. But it is seen in different ways throughout the rite. So you can't point to just one way of the epiclesis. But certainly the various blessings that the couple's, couple receives during the wedding ceremony are examples of epiclesis, epiclesis. So then the catechism talks about matrimonial consent. We, talk, we said that every sacrament has matter and form. The physical thing, that's, and then the form, the, the words that are used. The physical thing, the tangible thing, the matter of the sacrament of marriage is matrimonial consent, the consent of the couples. So, in order to enter into a marriage covenant, a sacramental marriage covenant, a, ma- a baptized man and woman are free, who are free to contract marriage freely express their consent. And they have, this consent to enter into marriage has to be marked by three things. First of all, it, well, it has to be free. It has to be free. And that freedom means that it's not, being, it's not under constraint. And second, that it's not impeded by any natural or ecclesiastical law. They are available. They are f- free to marry each other. If for some reason that consent is lacking, there is no marriage. It is indispensable, this consent, this free consent. And then it's defined in 1627. Consent consists in a human act by which the partners mutually give themselves to each other. I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. The consent that binds the spouses to each other finds its fulfillment in the two becoming one flesh. So at the heart of this consent is, I freely give myself to you, and you freely give yourself to me. And I freely receive you, you freely receive me. And so, as Genesis tells us, they become one flesh. 
The consent must be an act of the will of each of the contracting parties, free of coercion or grave external fear. No human power can substitute for this consent. If the freedom is lacking, the marriage is invalid. And then 1629 references the, a declaration of the nullity of marriage, which we use the word annulment. So if for some reason this consent is absent, the church examining the situation can declare that the marriage was null and void because this, this proper consent, this free consent, was missing. So that's really essentially what an annulment is. It is the examination of the church, of the exchange of, con- of consent, to see whether or not it was genuine and free. Sixteen thirty, the priest or the deacon receives the consent of the spouses in the name of the church and gives a blessing in the name of the church. The presence of the church's minister and also of the witnesses visibly expresses the fact that the marriage is an ecclesial reality. So it's essential that the church have an official representative because it's a reminder that marriage is an ecclesial reality. It's not just that these two people are baptized, but it's also, the, again, what is the mystery that is, is part of this sacrament? What is the hidden reality? The hidden reality is Christ's marriage, his wedding, his union, his love for the church. That's really the, the hidden mystery behind this sacrament. And so it really is, you know, it needs to be an ecclesial celebration. And so this brings us to, in 1621, what is the form, the form of marriage? The form of marriage. Um, well, it needs to be ecclesiastic. It needs to be according to that of the church. For a couple reasons, really the the catechism gives us four. First of all, because marriage is a sacrament, it's a liturgical act. And therefore, it's appropriate that it should be celebrated at a public liturgy in a church. Second, marriage introduces one into an ecclesial order. You remember in the sacrament of holy orders, we talked about these orders, which are like a civil body. So when you marry, you enter into the order of spouses, the order of married people. And with that, there are certain rights and duties in the church between spouses and towards their children. So I think that's something to keep in mind. And, you know, we don't talk about that enough, but it is marriage represents the entrance of a couple into an order into a designated group in the life of the church, the order of spouses. Um, And whenever we enter an order, just as 
one enters into the diaconate or the presbyterate or the uh, episcopacy or the office of virgins, the order of virgins, the order of hermits, whatever, or religious orders, if, you know, if we want to use it in that sense. But nonetheless, there are certain duties and obligations, and this is a public statement that we're entering into this. Number three, marriage is a state of life that is certainly, um, and its certainty is necessary. It's a state, a, a state of life in the church, and it's necessary. So in, and you, know, in the, you know, in order for us to function in the life of the church, we need to know whether you are married or not. Now, you might say, that's none of your business. Well, it's a life of the church. And, you know, if, if, you know, you're living with, you know, it's a public statement. If you're living with someone that you're not married with and you're presenting yourself to be an official teacher of the faith in a Catholic school or, you know, um, you know an official representative of the church or um, a model and sponsor for someone in RCIA or for baptism, well, I mean, that's, that's a, a big problem if you're living with someone that you're not married with. So who's this woman or who's this man that you're living with? Well, if you're married, then we, we have a right to know that you're married. Um, if you're not married, then, you know, then there are other discussions. But that's the logic that the, the catechism is presenting in this third point, And this is all in 1631. The fourth point is the public character of the consent protects the I do once given and helps the spouses remain faithful to it. So the fact that it's public, it's a public statement that I am giving my entire self to you, you're giving your entire self to me, I'm taking your entire, I'm receiving your entire self, you're receiving my entire self. You know, that holds us accountable to do that in public. You know, um, you know, I... I suppose, you know, um, you know, we might think of it uh, in this example of, say, like an alcoholic, you know. If no one knows that this person is an alcoholic, then if, um, you know, who's gone through recovery, well then, you know, if the person's at the bar next to me drinking, then I don't know that they've been unfaithful to this promise. But it's probably... One of the re- one of the, the 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 reasons I would imagine behind Alcoholics Anonymous kind of being more upfront, you know, when when people say, "Well, you know, I'm an addict or I'm an alcoholic," you know, what that means is that that then means hold me accountable, hold me accountable, you know. So if I publicly declare that I'm married, then I'm saying, "Hold me accountable." To living this way. Because of this, then, um, 1632, marriage preparation is, so, is of prime importance. 1633 through 37 talks about some very difficult but very common now situations, and that is mixed marriages and disparity of cult. 
Mixed marriage is used for a marriage between a Catholic and a baptized non-Catholic. So that's a mixed marriage. Disparity of cult refers to a marriage between a Catholic and a non-baptized person. Now, the Catechism says that um, differences in, in confessions, so whether it be a mixed marriage or a disparity of cult, does not constitute an insurmountable obstacle for marriage. And if you think that it is impossible, of course, there are many who have lived it. And, of course, all you need to do is kind of tell a couple, well, this is impossible, you can't do it. And they will spend the rest of their lives proving you to the contrary. But the difficulties of a mixed marriage must not be underestimated. It must not be underestimated. And the Catechism points to a couple issues that are real possibility in mixed marriages and why one should be hesitant about pursuing it. But it's not impossible. The Catechism's clear. It's not impossible. So one... One problem is the spouses risk experiencing the tragedy of Christian disunity, even in the very heart of the home. Disparity of cult, which again, we remember, baptized Catholic, non-baptized person, even makes this more difficult. So there's an experience of disunity at the heart of really what should be the place of unity, the family, the home. Number two... Differences about faith, and even the very notion of marriage, but even different religious mentalities, can become a source of tension in marriage, especially when it comes to the education of children. So these situations have to be resolved. And then third, a third big problem is the temptation to religious indifference that can arise both in the part of the Catholic and also, I think, in the part of the children. Um, 1635, this talks about, so it is possible for a baptized Catholic to marry another non-Catholic baptized Christian, what we call a mixed marriage, in order for that to happen, it, need, um, it needs express permission from the bishop. And in the process of marriage preparation, the priest will guide the couple through this. In the case of disparity of cults, so a baptized Catholic and a non-baptized person, um, what is necessary is a dispensation. A dispensation. In both cases, in both cases, the Catholic must confirm um, the obligations that they have to practice the faith, to persevere in their faith, to ensure the baptism and education of their children in the Catholic Church. And the non-Catholic future spouse should be aware of this. 
They don't have to cooperate with it, but they need to at least be aware of it. Made known to. And then in 1636 through 1637, there's some other advice that's given to, um, to couples in these situations. The end of this section of the catechism, or of, of this section, is the effects of the sacrament of marriage or grace. So really, in the sacrament of marriage, there are two primary effects. One is what we call the bond, B-O-N-D, the bond of marriage. And then the second is the grace of the sacrament. So the marriage bond is really this union between man and woman. Thus, the marriage bond has it's been established by God himself in such a way that a marriage concluded and consummated between baptized persons can never be, dis- be dissolved. It results from a, few, from a free human act of the spouses and their consummation of the marriage. It is irrevocable, therefore. So what, what comes is a one-flesh union. We can say this bond. The second are the particular graces of the sacrament. The principle, the proper grace of matrimony in 1641 is the perfection of the couple's love and the strengthening of their indissoluble unity. This grace helps them um, to attain holiness in their married life and to welcome and educate children. So really it's a... um, perfecting of their love. And Christ is the source of this grace. We might say it's Christ's very love for the church that becomes um, that grace that binds them together and strengthens and perfects their love. So much so that we say Christ dwells with them. Flowing from this bond are the goods and the requirements of conjugal love. Paragraph 1643 is crucial, and it talks really about, um, first of all, that conjugal love is a totality. It means it entails the entire person, body and soul, mind, everything including one's fertility even, um, is a complete gift to each other. And it is expressed and lived in these three, or we might say four goods. It's interesting, um, the catechism uses the, um, these four kind of phrases or statements to describe the goods of marriage, um, Three of them they put in italics, which are the traditional goods of marriage. Um, And then the other one, not in italics, um, is nonetheless um, worthily considered um, a good or a mark of marriage. So 
The Catechism says um, that this total union, this bond, this bond of totality between these two couples, demands indissolubility, which means it cannot be dissolved, it cannot be broken, it's permanent. Sometimes we call this the good of permanence. And faithfulness or fidelity in a definitive mutual giving a defi- uh, mutual giving, so sometimes we call this um, the uh, mutual um, mutual good of the spouses, but basically this sort of complete gift to each other, this givingness, this unity, and it is open to fertility. So procreation is this this other good. The third good, um, the one that doesn't make the list is this def- definitive mutual giving, the, the mutual good of the spouses or the um, unity of the spouses. Um, it's in there and it's in that language um, as a good of the spouse. But indissolubility, faithfulness, mutual good, and fertility or procreation. Those are the four marks. So first, the unity and indissolubility of marriage. So the catechism is kind of connecting this unity with indissolubility. The unity and indissolubility of the spouse's community of persons embraces their entire life. The unity of marriage distinctly recognized by our Lord is made clear in the equal personal dignity which must be accorded to man and wife in mutual and unreserved affection. Polygamy is contrary to conjugal love, which is undivided and exclusive. So while indissolubility is about more about the permanency, um, this unity also points to kind of Um, an equal personal dignity and respect for each other, which is why sometimes we uh, we refer to this as the mutual good of the spouses, the recognition of the mutual good of the spouses or the unity. So the the catechism is hesitating on referring to unity or mutual good as a a separate good. Definitely there are three goods. Fidelity, permanence, procreation. But then there is this, this, this other being which kind of is part of those three, um, which the catechism refers to, but not in as definitive as a way as those other three. And that is what we might call the mutual good of the spouses, the unity, the good of unity. Voila. So then the catechism goes through fidelity. Um, Love seeks to be definitive because of the intimate union of marriage as a mutual giving of two persons and the good of children. It demands a total fidelity. So because marriage is this unity of the mutual good of the spouses and because it entails the good of procreation, 
it excludes any possibility of infidelity. But the deepest reason for why fidelity is a part of marriage is because of God's own faithfulness to us and to the covenant. In 1649, the Catechism acknowledges that sometimes physical separation is necessary. It says that in these difficult situations, the best solution would be, if possible, reconciliation. However, the Christian community is called to help the person live out their situation in a Christian manner and in fidelity to their marriage bond, which remains indissoluble. 1650, today there are numerous Catholics in many countries who have recourse to civil divorce and contract new civil unions. Um, it is clear what the church teach, what Christ teaches in the gospel, um, that if if one marries um, someone who is divorced, they commit adultery. The church maintains that a new union cannot be recognized as valid if the marriage was. If the divorced are remarried civilly, they find themselves in a situation objectively that objectively contravenes God's law. Consequently, they cannot receive Eucharistic communion as long as their situation persists. For the same reason, they cannot exercise certain ecclesial responsibilities. Reconciliation through the sacrament of penance can be granted only to those who have repented for having violated the sign of the covenant and of fidelity to Christ and are who, who are committed to living in complete continence. So first of all, Christ is clear that marriage is permanent and that to marry someone who is divorced is adultery. Um, if one finds themselves in this situation and are civilly married, um, they, must, um, they cannot receive communion as long as the situation persists. They can't exercise certain ecclesial responsibilities. You can't be a lector or a Eucharistic minister or other things like that if you're divorced and remarried outside of the church. And then third, um, reconciliation through confession is possible. You can receive absolution as long as you intend to live in continence, complete continence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless and have a great day.